Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Ruler podcast. This is the podcast for issue 49 of Ruler magazine. My name's Jack Thurston, and in case you hadn't downloaded the Ruler podcast before, the Ruler podcast is... An audio accessory to Rouleau magazine, which comes out eight times a year and is a, a magazine that presents the finest in uh, cycling photography reportage. Here with me um, to talk about this issue 49 is Andy McGrath, who's the assistant editor of the magazine. Hello, Jack. Welcome back to the podcast, Andy. Thank you. And um, we should announce that we are in the, uh, in the new, well, new to me, offices of Rouleau, which are across the river. From Hoban, you have moved to Bermondsey Street, very fashionable Bermondsey Street. That's right. We're moving south, aren't we, Sally? First we were in Old Street, now Hoborn, now Bermondsey Street. So who knows where next? <laughs> uh, Croydon, maybe. Not so fashionable. <laughs> but it is lovely, yeah. It's lovely here. These are the offices, or the former offices, the, or the top floor of the offices of the Stage Magazine, which is a kind of venerable institution of um, thespian life in Britain, where the comings and goings in theatre land are discussed, and I think roles were advertised for and castings and that kind of thing. And I guess there's a, something quite appropriate about uh, Ruler being in in, in a theatrical um, magazine publishing house. I and mean, did you come up the stairs today to get here though? Because uh, you'll have noticed all the photographs of the old stars. Uh, you've got Bruce Forsyth and Ike Turner and Tina Turner, and that's. That makes it quite a nice walk up. I came uh, on the lift, I'm afraid. All right, well, uh, on the way down, it's there's some really surprising ones. Let's see who you recognise. It is fitting, yeah, it does suit us. It's a bit more spacious, I think, too. Yeah, and a terrific rooftop view here. We're looking out towards the London Eye. We've got um, various cranes at work, um, a lot of satellite dishes, rooftop gardens and, and the like. Construction going on in South London at the moment, isn't there? Yeah, well, there's a lot of construction going on in London altogether. Mm. Um, let's get down to business. Um, and, the, and the first thing we have to do in the podcast is to select a favourite photograph or, or photo spread from the magazine. Do you want to make the first choice, Andy? It's always tough, this one. Um, I might cheat and pick two. That's Ooh, okay. You can't do that. Um, okay then. Okay, all right. I'll be ruthless. And I'll go for a photograph by Tim Cole in a feature called We Are Family, which is meeting a host of families and the young talents and kind of interviewing them and showing what they've given up, uh, the sacrifices they've, they're making to help put their child, uh, or give them a better chance of being a pro rider. Uh, and it's on what page is it? It's ninety-seven. It's one of Gustav Hoog, the teenage Swedish rider, because he's wrapped in the Swedish flag and with his mum's arm 
and further kind of wrapped technically around him and it just sums up the kind of he's quite awkward in that uh, as you would be as a teenager being hugged uh, in front of, um, of the camera and you can see the love but also the protectiveness and that's that's kind of what we were getting across a lot in the feature with a lot of the other interviewees too mm, so right. I, yeah no great shot we'll, really we'll, like we'll come to that feature in a minute because you wrote the words um, that accompany the photographs and I will select a kind of grisly shot. Page 142, this is a photograph of, a black and white photograph of Taylor Finney um, after his terrible crash. I mean, not immediately after his terrible crash, but after um, he's had uh, all the rest and recuperation and surgery after his terrible crash. And he's, he's um, tying up his shoelaces and he's just got a horrible Frankenstein leg essentially his left leg has got two enormous scars um, with stitches on it and I don't know I think for me this just really encapsulate the awful things that professional cyclists are prepared to deal with and have to deal with in their working lives their sporting lives and and the willingness to come back so soon after something like that has happened to you and get back on the bike and you know he's every day he's putting on his shoes and looking down and he must see that awful mess on his legs and um, I mean it also testament to the fact that these riders can come back so quickly from these horrible injuries and be back at the highest level in terms of athletic performance and competition both mentally and physically so what's the what's the story with this uh, with this photograph I think Taylor posted it on Twitter about four or five weeks ago it was taken by his friend Greg Owen who's uh, a photographer and we realised we really wanted this in the feature. It was a great shot. I wondered if he had any other ones. He did. He had several. I think, in fact, I probably shouldn't say this, but I believe it was taken on an, an iPhone, not a normal camera. But anyway, we, we got in touch with Greg. It took a while. And I think this is a different angle to the original on Twitter. Um, what do you think about laces on bike shoes, by the well, way? Well, obviously, kind of extremely in favour of, uh, of that kind of thing I was quite surprised to see them actually because I thought it was all sort of velcro straps and strange mm. nylon buckles are laces back? I think they're, they're making a small comeback really? Uh, yeah yeah. Uh, not just Giro but I think a few other ma- manufacturers are making them I think it's nice I think uh, Bradley Wiggins fav- uh, favours them too I think I mean wouldn't you have to have something covering up the lace to stop it getting caught in the you know in a chain wheel they must have a way around that of manufacture but I know what you mean. I, uh, actually, when I was much younger, I got my lace wrapped around the pedal spindle, yeah, which is what... That's a classic. Yeah, that's a classic. Good, we've all been there, not just me then. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's turn from the back of the magazine to the front of the magazine um, and the opening feature, which is a survey and a discussion of the art of time trialling um, involving four uh, very successful practitioners of that craft or or art as uh, as it's described in the piece um they are steve cummings taylor finney the aforementioned taylor finney alex dowsett and michael hutchinson there's a lot in there if you're interested in time trialing and you're maybe time trialing yourself there's there are a few nuggets there aren't there it's very easy to see good pra- practitioners of the art of time trial like tony martin or bradley wickens with the completely flat still back and think it's easy that it's even simple and also the fact that most of the time 
the same three, four, five riders win most of the big time trials, you'd think it's quite formulaic. But it's clear that it's not as simple as putting it into the biggest gear and smashing it for for ten miles. It's there's so many minute things. It's the uh, same as climbing, sprinting, anything in cycling. Maybe I quite enjoyed finding out just about those small things. Like even at the very high end for a pro, uh, I think Dowsett said they're thinking when they're still going extremely fast, can I change gear and get one, two miles an hour more? Because that that is a difference between not just first and second, first and 22nd. I mean, um, it is amazing how small the margins are because they're all off doing it individually on their own and then the margins come down to a few seconds. Yeah. Well, it can be heartbreaking, can't it? Uh, as one of them says, I think, as soon as they cross the line and they think they've given everything and maybe they come second or, or third by one second, they'll get that nagging feeling. Mm. Could I have given more? Mm. Could I have mm. given more? Mm. Michael Hutchinson, I'm quite surprised because I get, I get the feeling that he's a sort of scientific type of guy. He's written this book, Faster, which um, is a kind of exposition of his geekiness in terms of everything that he's done to go faster on the bike. But he says here, time trialling is all about feel. I'm tempted to say that anyone who relies on taking their inspiration from a two-inch screen is not a natural time trialist. It seems likely that these pro cyclists are probably slightly better at going into a certain zone and mm. getting the extra two, three to five percent that amateurs just cannot access, unlocking that and still being able to function. Because, you know, when I'm knackered on a bike and I've got to take a sharp corner at 25 miles an hour, I'm going to do it badly sometimes. I remember David Miller telling me about how he would feather into the red zone. It's just embracing pain and kind of dealing with it. Um, Although I thought I thought Michael, again, was quite interesting on pain, saying that he didn't want to um, refer to it as pain and that there was a lot of uh, machismo, which is misplaced. And actually, pain is something that you use to know where you are in terms of your physical capabilities and that they all say that they've, they've done time trials where they've not felt that much pain mm. and they've just been going really well it does strike me as a kind of the perfectionist discipline uh, Alex Dowsett says about the technical aspect too that he might like his bike a certain way but sometimes he has to cede to the team sponsors and the and use the equipment they have even if it might be you know five watts slower or what have you, which yeah, that's, that is was, important to remember. That's that quite was interesting. really interesting. I thought that point was really interesting. Where there was, he was saying, essentially, you know, if you're an aspiring racer, don't look at what the pros are riding because you, you think that that's what they've chosen to go faster because that is actually what they've been given by their sponsor and it wouldn't be their free choice. That's true. I mean, just reading straight from it now, he says, you have to be adaptable uh, with equipment. The only say I get is the size of the bike and what type of handlebars I have, S-Bend's, or J-Bends, and whether I want a shallow or a deep front wheel, and that's it. Which I was really surprised at, actually. It's nice to have that kind of level of detail in the article. To It isn't just time trialling, it's everything around it. Well, if you go to a uh, British time trial, you will see, I'm sure, one or two Planet X bikes, because they've been very successful at selling carbon bling to the, uh, to the British public um, at a competitive price. And I went along to meet with the, the Planet X folks and the, the boss, Dave Lochran, up in um, Sheffield, Rotherham Borders, um, and um, find out about one of their more recent acquisitions, which is the Holdsworth Mark. 
and um, we'll come to Holdsworth in a minute. But but Planet X, I thought was an interesting is an interesting story in terms of how the bike industry has changed over the years because they're assembling bikes from parts that are manufactured manufactured in the Far East, um, as you know, most bike parts are nowadays, and they have attempted to cut out the distributor and retailer uh, links in the chain and offer a, a bike that is essentially direct from from the factory uh, assembled in Britain and sold via the internet um, with very little overhead and uh, very little advertising in magazines like Rouleur, which is <laughs> which is why you might have uh, not heard about Planet X because they don't spend a lot of money advertising. And um, that, as we know, is the, the dark secret of, of a lot of cycling magazines is that they only tend to review the marks that spend money on advertising in their mags. Um, I think Planet X quite enjoy being the underdog, being the kind of uh, northerners, you know, set aside from uh, from London and the, and the cycling boom down here. I read in the feature, I think not just a bit different, but outright uh, oddballs, um, outcasts maybe. I think of something that Dave Lochran, who is he the head of Planet X? Well, he's, he's the owner. Uh, the, he's owner the owner, sorry. I mean, he started the uh, the company in you know its earliest form while he was at home, living at home, um, on an enterprise allowance scheme grant, which I think got, got him 40 quid a week. That was, um, he was in a pit village in South Yorkshire um, using his mum's credit card to order a dozen tri-bars from America. Um, I think he was the first person to import tri-bars. And um, he, he was able to sell... Uh, 11 um, to his mates and, and, and that would pay for the one for it that he would use because he was a, it was a mm. keen and, and quite good triathlete and, and he grew that business you know, in all kinds of random directions through the late 80s and 90s um, into a company that is now um, you know, doing 20 million a year in sales um, and uh, it's the biggest well I think they're the second biggest assembler of bikes in the UK after Brompton the folding specialists. It's hard to believe they've done so well. I think he said something on the lines of that whenever I make something a success and it becomes slightly zeitgeisty, I move away from it and stop pushing it so hard. And so to be turning over 20 million is a real feat. He clearly has a very strong personality. Uh, I'm sure he's he he's a very magnetic in some ways, but possibly divisive. Yeah, I think quite, As you say, that's quite difficult, the guy, difficult to guy, guy to work for, but also very, yeah, very charismatic leader um, as well. Um, and so, yeah, the, the extensive reason for my for my visit was um, the acquisition of the Holdsworth mark, which is a venerable old name in British bike making, um, a name that had sort of somehow lost its way. Um, obviously, uh, it's original owners sold it on and sold it on and then it got sold on again and it just became a kind of mark with a heritage and a history and, and, and nothing really to say for itself in, in, in the present day um, but a huge amount of affection for the brand um, and it's particularly in its uh, iteration in the late 60s and 70s in the Holdsworth Campagnolo team and I, I spoke to Jamie Burrow who um, is a former a pro with US Postal Service now working for Planet X um, and he's their man in Italy and I asked him to explain how Holdsworth slotted into the Planet X strategy. We bought the brand at the back end of last year and obviously I think Holdsworth as a brand had failed where they couldn't keep up with the pace of, a, of you know of modern things you know they failed with the carbon etc so as soon as we bought the brand I was given it as a project and to me Holdsworth 
meant retro the retro steel style you know that's what they were famous for from kind of like the 30s through to the 80s like you know with the the pinnacle being the the professional campaign so we set about kind of going through all the uh, all the back catalogs and picking out kind of the iconic frames from the different periods from the 40s through to the 80s for us Holdsworth should be steel and it should be handmade in Britain hand painted in Britain and as much as British as possible um, our first samples we've had handmade in Italy yeah, by the best guys in the business but if we can get the volume the plan is to bring everything back to the UK I mean obviously Planet X being based in Sheffield if we can have steel frames made in a steel city that would be perfect and we pur- purposely we went down to Reynolds in Birmingham we wanted Reynolds involved and, and for me when designing this first range I wanted everything 531 obviously except for the Italia which is obviously Columbus I said it needs to be 531 just because the 531 badge is iconic to the Holdsworth badge and they're obviously, they, they, they don't produce 531 anymore, but they've got a, a brilliant catalogue of new tubes, and they have tubing with the same properties we needed and the same diameters. I was no, it just doesn't fit unless it has the 531 badge, and they've been really good in actually remaking 531 just for us. The Planet X is famous for its um, modern bicycles. It's, it's, it that seems like quite a departure for you as a company. Well, we bought, along with Holdsworth, back in the last year, we also bought Vino, um, it's kind of second-tier Italian brand. And they were very famous for offering custom-made carbon frames that didn't have quite the price tag of a Pinarello or Cornago. In the beginning, they were kind of all side projects. Yeah, as a Planet X family, the way we see things, with Planet X, we've got your kind of 799 bikes up to maybe like 1500 pounds covering entry-level and medium race bikes. Whereas... We we could put the same amount of effort into these bikes, for the, you know the lovely worked lugs and the chrome finishes. But if you put a Planet X brand on it, it just doesn't really do it justice. So now as a family, we can have beautiful classic handmade steel with Holdsworth. We can have your entry through to mid range with Planet X, and then have beautiful handmade top end race bikes with the Vina brand, and then obviously on one for your mountain bike at Urban. And, and in one house, we've covered pretty much everything, uh, all the different aspects of cycling. That was Jamie Burrow talking about how Holdsworth um, was, is going to be a part of, of Planet X. Um, it, it is a very strange departure, and it is a classic Dave Lockeran move that doesn't really make any commercial sense, but maybe through the sheer force of his personality and, and his kind of nose for a bargain, it will work out. I mean, subsequent to doing the interview and the, and the visit, he said that he'd um, made an agreement with an Italian bike-making uh, factory that they were going to, export everything to Britain and set up in Rotherham. I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but that, that seemed that seemed to be agreed in principle that they were going to bring production to Britain for, that's a big for these bikes. As well, isn't it? Yeah, well that I mean that, that that brings me to a short interview I did with Lorenzo Altissimo, who worked in the tubing business in Italy for twenty years uh, f- uh, for Columbus and Dedachai. And um Lorenzo is is handling the sort of steel side of things and and I was interested in his observations about i was interested in his uh, his take on 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 the future of of steel bikes and i asked him how steel bikes were faring in the italian market almost disappeared in italy it's a really good market for the really for the high-end products and aluminium first and carbon afterwards has killed the steel completely in Italy, I would say not even the big firm like uh, De Rosa or uh, Pinarello or Colnago as well are selling a lot in Italy still. 
the culture has completely disappeared and I don't know the reason why. I think, I believe, because the, the Italian market for the high-end and really high-end products is very good and, and that's why the people have switched immediately to uh, aluminium when it came in the market and then carbon. Uh, in the UK, it's pretty different. People is much more attached to the to the culture, to the past culture. And again, once more, not 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 only today, but even my past uh, job, I've seen much more uh, attachment to the steel. And so, what's happened to the places and the factories and the people who actually make it? Has it disappeared, or is that still no, there? In Italy, in Italy, they are still working. Not very much but there's still some good frame makers there's still some good painters because Italy is still anyway exporting very much you know that's the main reason why they're still working for the Italian market itself they would be already closed so what are the markets internationally which countries oh there's a I'm talking about of course the big name like the Rosa Pinarello Conago they sell a lot in the Far East they sell a lot here in the UK uh, in the USA uh, Taiwan is getting a really good market. Japan always been a really good market for that. So those are the main markets where they're still still surviving, producing produced in uh, in Italy. That was Lorenzo Altissimo talking about um, how steel is dead in Italy, um, at least for the <laughs> Italian markets, yeah. and that they, that they do have a steel bike making industry still there, but it's entirely serving export customers, um, principally in markets like Britain, America. In the Far East, how can they revive it? Well, I, I don't think they can. No. I mean, I think I think that 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 romance is just not there. Um, maybe because it's too close to home, um, it's too mundane, um, or maybe it's because the interest in cycling is is from a very much from a performance perspective in Italy, and um, you've got people who want to maybe become a racer and young people who want to be the have the fastest bike, and then you've got the older guys who. You know, just want every little bit of um, help that they can get in keeping the wheels turning because you do see some kind of rather portly old Italian gentlemen who I dare say were good riders in their youth, but you know, <laughs> on quite, quite carrying quite a lot of weight on these extremely lightweight carbon bikes. It does seem as though a lot of the skill and expertise in custom steel bike manufacturing in Italy it's being transferred into custom carbon bike manufacturing in Italy. Yeah. And there have been features in Rula in the past on that about how, because we, we assume that carbon bikes are kind of made out of a mold and pressed and inflated and cooked and all that kind of thing in a forest, which, you know, it's true for most of them. But there is this um, sort of lugged uh, tube cutting um, equivalent um, version, which is much more expensive and much more custom that, that still goes on. It's always going to be the economic viability of making the majority of frames in Asia or in Taiwan. It's always, it's always going to be favoured by the majority of, of brands. It's just, it, 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 it would be really nice for Holdsworth to get a foothold back in the market. I mean, I, I'm not a great I'm, brand. Yeah, they are a great brand. With a great history. They are a great brand with a great history, but they're not going to be set, they're not, they're not going to be cheap bikes. If you're having a steel bike made, there are a ton of small boutique frame builders who will do something really interesting and really unusual for you and, and what they're talking about with Holdsworth is still very much a production range um, it's you know off the peg stuff and there are a lot of old steel bike frames out there if you're interested in that vintage look you know why why would you have a 531 bike frame made now when you can get one for a fraction of the price that was made 30 years ago um, if that's if that's what you're interested in a bike and maybe has a bit of 
history. And of course, uh, as you mentioned in the article, I think, uh, how are Planet X going to deal with selling a much pricier model when they're used to, I think their £1,000 frame is by far the best seller. I've seen it in bike shops everywhere, time trails, road races, sportives. That's going to be the next challenge, but... Yeah, I mean, that, that's the truth. And, and when I talked about how Planet X has grown, that growth has entirely come, well, not entirely, but largely come from the £1,000 carbon road bike with a Altegra group set, which is just a phenomenal price, mm. you know, to, to produce that, that spec. That, yeah. that spec, and it's irresistible in the market. But it's difficult to see how a single company can offer best value for money and best that money can buy because they're two very different things um, but I, I do like I do like what Planet X are doing because I think there are some huge margins in the bike industry and whether they're huge profit margins or they're just huge margins that get spent on lots of advertising lots of promotion and marketing and brand development and that kind of thing I like the idea that there is an option if you don't want to be buying into a you know very very aspirational high margin product you can still get something that that is good and clearly the Planet X bikes are being ridden very fast. There are plenty of um, people out there winning races on Planet X bikes. Well, we just have a look around the factory as you did and you've got Mark Lovett working there, uh, Jamie Burrows working there. I mean, you've got some of the fastest British racers of, um, of generation. I'm sure I'm forgetting several other names who are, who have all ridden. Oh, John Tanner. The bikes, yeah. Ray Eden, uh, the late Ray Eden. So they're not just cheap, they're fast as well. So it's it's perfect in a way we shall see how they go yeah um let's talk about your piece andy on on family we mentioned it at the beginning um and this kind of dovetails quite nicely with a piece in the last issue that i talked about in the podcast with tom southam about the sacrifices that that families make um or in that in that case that that partners make um of their of their professional cycling husband or wife where did the idea come from for for doing this piece I think it was a one from Tim Cole. He had the uh, idea and got in touch with me. I think I was on the tour of Britain and said, I, uh, I need someone to come next week to do this feature. But I was sold on it because it, it is something that I'd never seen before. The family are always in the background, not just in cycling, but in kind of any sport, any profession. They're always there to pick up the pieces uh, if, the, if the race goes badly or, or celebrate if it goes well. And they're quite easily somehow... Like, erased from the sport you have the mechanic the soigneur the coach there's not a great consideration made for the family in fact it's not it's not in the piece but um and it was going to be uh, uh, i took it out because uh, there uh, wasn't much space for an intro uh there was a french father doing the, doing the junior race who was remonstrating with one of the heavies who kind of guard the people with accreditation from the hoi polloi without and his son, Frank Bonamore, was on the attack in a junior road race and it looked like he was going to win. And I could hear him shouting, my boy is going to win, my boy is going to win, let me through, you had to let me through. He was, he was really angry. He was quite a small man and his, his bounce was quite wide, so he wasn't going to do anything. Okay, uh, in the end, his son was caught and didn't win. But I thought that was quite quite an evocative mm. image. That must be so frustrating. Kind of the biggest moment of his career, possibly. And you can't even get to see the screen or the finish line to possibly share it with mm. him. I mean, did you get a sense for how much families have to contribute to the to the sporting lives of their of their offspring? 
um, if they're if they're successful. I mean, it's because it, cycling is one of those sports where there's quite a lot. I mean, there's quite a lot of expense in all the kit. Yeah. Um, races are all over the country, so it's not like if you're playing football where you know you turn up and you play at your home ground or you know everyone goes in a coach with a team off to play elsewhere. People do have to do a lot of driving, give up a lot of time, a lot of petrol miles. It's 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 expensive in time and money to to have a have a cycling uh, offspring, isn't it? It is. You, you do get a sense of that. A lot of these parents are quite self-effacing and doing the interviews in front of their offsprings. They don't want to. They don't want to push it too much. Because uh, I think the Swedish family, for example, said they'd driven twenty thousand kilometers that that year in support of their son Gustav. But it is always there, it, and it isn't just a fact. Uh, talking to the parents, it's also we wanted it to mainly be juniors on the cusp of becoming stars and pros uh, to kind of grasp the uncertain period uh, because it isn't just the parents that could change if they become successful it's a rider that could change and it's kind of asking the question what happens when your son becomes a star and becomes the property of agents sponsors hundreds of requests every year which is what has happened to Nairo Quintana the winner of the Giro, who is the last interviewee with his um, father and mother. And that was that was quite a humbling experience, actually, because we'd talked to 14 families uh, in that week in Florence, and about eight had made it into feature. But um, he just spoke very simply but powerfully about the bond of family and said it was like sowing the earth. I uh, believe they run a farm in uh, Boyaca, actually. I'm not sure how you say that. To be honest, I was a little bit choked at the end, and because I wasn't expecting that at all. I mean, it took Quintana's family, possibly from Colombia, just to realise the most basic principles and to speak about it eloquently. Do you think that there are potential bike racers who haven't been able to progress because they haven't had the family support? Is it something that is essential or can you make it without having the family who's prepared to drop everything to run around the country with you and, 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 and spend money on your stuff? It's a good question. I think at least there needs to be the initial willingness and then maybe to pass them on to a cycling club or a coach or something like that. And the mix here is that you have some parents too who are ex-racers who have been in, in cycling and know it inside out, like uh, Seamus Downey. And you had one American family, uh, the Mostovs, who had no idea. And they weren't afraid to say so, which is what I really liked. Because it would be easy to pretend you know it all. But even then they were saying we're still learning every day about cycling. And and is cycling the kind of sport where you can have problems with uh, pushy parents? None of them want to say it. And none of the parents would ever admit they're pushy parents. So it is down to me to look and see the small things they're doing. Like telling the rider that he should be resting and not doing this interview anymore. Um, or watching from the kind of bylines and seeing how they react when the rider finishes. There are definitely a fair few. I think you wouldn't see it at a World Championships so much as at a local race, perhaps with riders on a lower level who haven't made it because most of these families were, they were so proud, as you would be. And the World Championships is something that any family who are into cycling or or not can understand. I mean, you're representing your country. It's a very simple thing. Yeah, and also by the time you're there, you're pretty good. The worst case is the sort of parent who who won't accept that their their child for either lack of 
talent physically or they just don't have the desire or inclination for cycling but can't kind of accept that and just sort of, it does bring you back to philip larkin doesn't it um <laughs> they fuck you up your mum and dad exactly. can we say that in the podcast well i just did we ought to just do a quick roundup of what else is in the issue um if you've not got it in front of you uh, the usual columns from matt seaton johnny green and um, a great time trialing recollection from robert miller taylor finney interviewed by ian cleverly and um what else and with the with the tour of britain in mind you've unearthed a lost canister of um cine film footage of the milk race 1966 um, as it traveled through wales and you've got some still images um from from that um cine film and and the fascinating story about how the guy who photographed this race in colour, I should hasten to add, because there's not an awful lot of colour film of British cycling in the 1960s um, about the story about how that how that came about, which is which is a caper across the mountains of of <laughs> Wales in the in the mid 60s. Um, and finally, let's uh, mention the profile of uh, an appreciation of Danielle Mongia, the the voice, the speaker of the Tour de France for. Uh, 41 years and this is a piece by Edward Pickering um, who's one of my favourite writers in cycling is this his debut for Ruler? I believe it is yeah, yeah I think right. it is that's good right. I think he's doing there's other stuff he's doing as well isn't there in the pipeline there's something in the pipeline for issue 50 yeah. but we'll keep that we'll quiet keep, but let's just say it's, it's definitely worth waiting for yeah um, so a brilliant appreciation of, of Daniel Mongia who is um, a voice that is inseparable from the Tour de France and let's let's play out on uh, this issue's podcast with with what you can't get from the magazine because <laughs> uh, Edward does his best to describe um, the voice of Daniel Mongia but this being the Ruler podcast we give you Daniel Mongia thanks for listening I'm Jack Thurston. And I'm Andy McGrath. Until next time, goodbye. Ils vont passer dans un court moment, donc, sous le portique vital officiel du Tour de France qui annonce le dernier kilomètre. Mais quelle image! Le champion du monde et le numéro un mondial en tête de peloton à peloton très étiré. On aperçoit également Johnny Ogerland, le héros malheureux de ce Tour de France en première place, Bernard Deisel, qui a pris la tête maintenant. Ils sont sous le portique. Vitel, l'officiel du tournoi d'un kilomètre. Bernard Teisel qui emmène. Marc Cavendish. Et il est en bonne position. On aperçoit également les autres sprinters avec Touruzod. Qu'il se replace, il reste 800 mètres. À couvrir l'équipage de Saïroude. Va-t-elle permettre à Marc Cavendish d'obtenir une troisième victoire consécutive sur les Champs-Élysées Il en cinquième position. André Greipel est en première place. Rosario Akibroras, le sprinter espagnol. Et là également, on retrouve, donc Kelser, on retrouve d'autres sprinters. Et dans quelques secondes, nous connaîtrons donc le vainqueur de l'étape du jour. Quel va être le plus rapide sur l'avenue des Champs-Élysées On retrouve tous les sprinters, l'équipe HTC Iron avec Cavendish qui va déboîter dans un instant le grand britannique qui attaque en tête. Elle va passer la gagne qui tente de passer. Thanks for downloading this edition of the Ruler podcast. You can read Ruler magazine, which comes out eight times a year, by taking out a subscription. Go to www.ruler.cc or you can pick up the latest edition at a growing number of bookshops and bike shops. 
If you've got an iPad, you can read the magazine on the iPad. Not only the current issue, but a handful of back issues as well. You'll find it in the Apple Bookstore. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.